Hello and welcome back to another episode of Category Insight where we dive into all things OTC. Today we have a very exciting podcast starting with a look at type 1 and type 2 diabetes with Karen Davies from Diabetes UK. Then we hear from Dr. Kadib and Dr. Ajan on their new innovative cardiometabolic clinic service, highlighting the importance of collaboration in improving patient care. Finally, stick around to hear Millie speak to Max, who was diagnosed with diabetes at just seven years old. Such an exciting episode for you today, so let's get to it. Our first guest joining us on the podcast this morning is Karen Davies, Senior Clinical Advisor at Diabetes UK. Hi Karen, how are you doing today? Hi Monica, I'm doing very well, thank you. Great, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Could you start by telling us a bit about the work that you do with Diabetes UK? Yeah, well, I've been a clinical advisor with the charity for about two and a half years now. And um, we do a number of things in the care team. So we support um, writing of and editing of articles for our Balance magazine, which is for people with diabetes and we look out for topics for, for that magazine. We also have an equivalent magazine for healthcare professionals called Update. Um, but beyond that, within the charity, we support any media releases, um, any patient or the public-facing information that goes out to people living with diabetes or our stakeholders And my main role within the charity is to support the digital education team. So we have an online free learning package for people living with diabetes. And um, as clinical advisor, I support the content that goes on that learning zone. So anybody with diabetes um, or healthcare professionals can look at that free online learning package. Thank you so much. And could you maybe start by giving us a brief overview of what diabetes is and its prevalence in the UK? Yeah, well, to give a brief overview is quite difficult because diabetes is actually quite a complicated set of conditions. Um, There are a number of different types of diabetes, but probably for this podcast, we've focused more on the main known types, type 1 and type 2 diabetes. But diabetes is is basically a condition where a person is unable to control their blood glucose levels and the blood glucose levels go too high. And we might think of glucose as being sugar and, you know, something that's innocuous, but actually sugar in the body Um, can lead to serious consequences and the condition diabetes uh, requires management and without the right treatment or care or support the condition can lead to some nasty complications such as heart attacks, strokes, kidney failure, foot disease or blindness. So it's a serious set of conditions and the cause of it depends on your type of diabetes. Um, So either the body doesn't produce enough insulin or the insulin it produces isn't effective. 
So regarding your second question, prevalence, um, unfortunately, the numbers are rising year upon year. Um, More people than ever have diabetes in the UK. It's estimated that 4.7 million people have it. Um, But in reality, we know the number is far higher. And we know that there's about 1 million people who may have type 2 diabetes, but not yet diagnosed. Um, and all the warnings that we have and predictions from public health observatories looking at diabetes prevalence uh, is estimating that we'll, we'll get to a point of one in 10 people living with diabetes by 2030, which is really quite scary. Yeah, yeah, that that's so yeah, such a significant number as well. And um, thank you. You're you're right. We're going to focus on type one and type two. But just out of interest, what are the other types of diabetes? Yeah, well, I mean, for your audience, which is primarily pharmacy, they may well they will be coming across a lot of pregnant women, and um, some people have a, a type of diabetes that presents itself during pregnancy. We call it gestational diabetes. Um, so that may well be a cohort that your your um, listeners may um, identify with. Then there are um, about five or six different genetic types. Um, they're only about two oh, percent wow. of our uh, diabetes community, uh, but nonetheless, um, you know that they, they are individually quite different um within that we have like maternally inherited diabetes and deafness and you know that they're each unique in their own way and and this there's always a strong family history a a strong genetic um history there and some like the one i've described comes with deafness and sometimes heart problems and kidney problems so really important that they're identified um, so that you know the person can have the right treatment and support in in a specialist clinic and then we have things like steroid induced diabetes um, cystic fibrosis and diabetes go together so yeah, it's, it's, and there's a type of diabetes, which maybe we'll come on to when we explain type 1 and type 2, that is a bit slower of onset of, of type 1 diabetes. So many, many different ways that um, it can present or the causal factors. Yeah, and so you touched on that diabetes can be genetic is it can it only be genetic like who can be affected yeah so there are lots of risk factors for type 2 diabetes um, and that's the main type of diabetes that we tend to hear about because it's it's the highest in prevalence Um, but the reasons for it developing can be complex so it can be like a um, you know mix of these risk factors put together But what we do know about um, type 2 diabetes is that if a person is living with um, obesity or are overweight, this considerably increases their risks. But other risk factors for type 2 diabetes are factors like your age. So as we age, um, the small little cells, um, the beta cells in our pancreas that produce this hormone called insulin that is integral to managing our glucose levels 
it can wear and tear just like other parts of our body. So, um, you know, age is a factor with type 2 diabetes. And once a day, uh, type 2 diabetes used to be known as age onset. Um, the sad thing is now that because of lifestyles, I mentioned about um, living with obesity or overweight, um, but also sedentary behaviours uh, are meaning that we're having younger and younger cases of type 2 now, um, which is very sad. But other factors uh, beyond family history are ethnicity. So we know that um, people living in the South Asian community experience something we call insulin resistance at an earlier age. Um, and, you know, yeah, we, sh- we know that where, you know, our genes influence where and how we store fat in our body. Um, and the more harmful places to store fat is around our middle or central obesity, the apple shape we sometimes refer to. Um, men tend to store their fat more centrally around the middle. Um, so men have slightly higher risk than women. But all these risk factors, particularly for type 2 diabetes, Monica, if any of the audience are interested, but you can go to our website and look at our Know Your Risk tool. And that's open for the public, for anybody. And it's, you know, short questions to determine your age, all the risk factors I've mentioned, your ethnic group, your if you've got family history. And it gives you, um, at the end, your risks of type 2 diabetes. Yeah, so that's that's type 2. With type 1, there, there can be some genetic risks. Um, we know of some cases where there are families where um, there's, you know, increased um, number in the family that have type 1 diabetes, but not always. Um, the causes are quite different in type 1. Yeah, and, and what would you say are the main differences between type 1 and type 2 diabetes? Um, I think the main differences would be causes, um, the treatment, the care pathway, and how they present. So the causes of it, um, with type 1 diabetes, there's, there's an autoimmune attack on the small little beta cells. Um, causing those beta cells to stop producing insulin. And there's a lot of research, exciting research into that arena at the moment, really exciting work, um, which Diabetes UK is championing, actually, um, to look at, you know, both that process, um, to look at identifying people that might be at risk of type 1 diabetes, and also immunotherapies, Um, so medications to stop or slow down this immune attack. So the causes there are where the body attacks itself, but we're not quite sure of all the triggers that set that that autoimmune attack off. The treatment for type 1 diabetes, well, that's probably simpler (laughs) in a way than um, type 2 because the treatment for type 1 diabetes is insulin. Um, However that might be delivered, whether it's um, via injections or via what we call a pump, 
Um, but it's really important. Somebody who has true type 1 diabetes, they always need insulin. And the care pathway then in terms of if somebody has type 1 diabetes, they're Their education needs to be reflecting of what um, their treatment is. Um, They need more dietetic support to learn how to look at their carbohydrate and manage their doses of insulin around their food. And they need the pathways and access to technology and specialist services that might be, you know, access to a consultant um, in a hospital or diabetes nurse specialist. And when it comes to diagnosis, I mean, the presentation of, of somebody with type 1 is usually quite quick. So it, it could be days, it could be weeks of, of, of symptoms. Um, and potentially that, that that person can show signs of, of something we call ketones. But, you know, in contrast to all of this, type 2 diabetes um, the treatments can be very different. You know, it could be lifestyle um, alone. It could be a variety of different oral medications and therapies, or it could be injectable therapies, um, our GLP-1s that are not insulin, but they're a gut hormone, or it could be insulin. So a variety of different treatments for type 2 diabetes according to what treatment that person's on, they um, may not have to blood test if they have type 2 diabetes. And their care pathway, their education would be different. It would be a lot more about lifestyle um, and looking at portions and managing their weight, keeping active, those sort of things, cardiovascular disease, um, risk factors, monitoring those. And they may well be more likely to be under their GP care for their annual review. Um, Yeah, so very, very different in terms of presentation as well. Um, Could be anything from no symptoms to the same symptoms that you may get with type 1 diabetes. Thank you. And yeah, so just touching on those symptoms there, if someone kind of came into the pharmacy, what what symptoms might they present that could indicate um, diabetes diagnosis? Yeah, well, I guess the four classic ones, and we have um, in Diabetes UK have put out a a, um, previous campaign on this to raise awareness of symptoms. And that's, we call it the four T's. So it's basically tiredness, thirsty, thinner, and going to the toilet, as in passing urine. So the four T's um, are an easy way to remember the the key signs that that people can get. And as I said, you're more likely to see these signs and symptoms in a clear case of type 1 diabetes that's not diagnosed. But people who have type 2 diabetes may, may present with this as well. There also might be other more ambiguous um, symptoms like feeling fatigued, reporting frequent infections. That certainly might be somewhere in a pharmacy setting that you might pick up on. Um, Thrush is quite common because the person might be passing lots of urine and that's the body's way to get rid of the sugar levels. 
but the urine is very sugary, so therefore you get more thrush infections. Um, so that could be a way that a pharmacist is picking up um, that somebody might be at risk of any of these you know, conditions. And frequent thirst, you know, some of these, if they're very moderate, um, you know, severity, a person could pass off fatigue and thirst as, as age or, you know, just pass off the symptoms. Um, but certainly, I would say if it, if it was somebody in a pharmacy setting to be aware of any of these symptoms, the person losing weight for no known reason, and particularly if they've got a previous history of other autoimmune disease like thyroid disease or celiac disease, then definitely to have a red flag in their head about this could be diabetes. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thank you. And um, you have already kind of touched a little on the treatment and management of diabetes. I mean, you know, you've mentioned lifestyle advice for type 2. I just wondered maybe if you could elaborate maybe a little more on treatment for type 1 diabetes it's you know it's kind of summer now people have got their t-shirts on and I've kind of myself noticed an increase of seeing people with the um, kind of little um, things on the back of their arms and um, maybe people might not know what those are and what they do could you maybe tell us about this yeah so um, with type 1 diabetes that that's been fantastic to see the development of technology that can really help people um, so with type 1 diabetes, there's two ways tech can help a person. One is um, smarter ways, if you like, of testing their glucose levels. So the traditional way has been using a lancet to prick the finger. So it's an invasive way to get blood, um, to extract a little drop of blood and put it on a a, a stick um, and use a meter. So you've got a couple of pieces of a kit there and it's invasive, you know. Um, so just think of any of our lifestyles where, you know, you're eating fruit or you're out in a dirty workplace or you're around a dusty environment, you know, it's you're a gardener. Um, it isn't always easy for people to blood glucose monitor. So um, I, what you're referring to, we've seen a few times on Strictly Come Dancing, for example, one of the dancers, um, Leela Moss, um, Kate Moss's daughter. It's fantastic to see people wearing these little discs, these flash glucose monitors, um, or there is a continuous glucose monitor centers, sensors. And they're basically... Um, either in the device themselves or in the circumstance of flash, you can flash your phone over that little sensor and it's taking um, samples of interstitial fluid. So it's monitoring and capturing and able to give that person with diabetes a graph of their glucose levels. And as long as they're scanning over their device every eight hours, they will get a whole 24-hour picture of their glucose levels and where they're going up and down and what sort of foods or activity or stress or their menstrual cycle, all those things, they, they get a wealth of information. Sometimes it can be hard wading through that information, but it, it's offering such value for people to learn more about their diabetes and 
where their glucose excursions go and when they go in different directions. Um, and they also contain alarms. So it helps that person to know and be aware if their glucose levels are going low, for example. And this is really important if they're a driver or they, they're they a roofer and that's their occupation or they're, you know, um, having to be mindful of where their glucose level is. Um, it just helps them. And it also there's also technology in how insulin is given for somebody with type 1 diabetes. So traditionally, it's always been giving injections of insulin and they're very different types of insulin they cover different time spans you know they work over different time spans so some are very rapid acting some are shorter acting some are longer acting and there's always a balance for the person with type 1 diabetes to get the right um, amount of insulin in their system it's it's quite it can be quite a management nightmare for them for some people um but there are technology it's not ev- for everyone where there's um again a little sensor that goes on the skin and a pump containing a little um amount of insulin that is delivered slowly over the 24 hours um again isn't pump therapy is not for everybody, but it is um, a technology that is available now and it gives people choices, um, which is great. Yeah, I think, you know, that's one of the best parts of it is that there are more options now. And I can't imagine how liberating some of these, you know, bits of technology are for people. Um, I just wanted to ask you, um, often diabetes is kind of associated with foot care and some people might not really understand why that is so I wondered if you could maybe touch on why foot care is quite important for some people with diabetes. Yeah sure um so I guess people um go back to thinking about glucose or sugar they they maybe think it how can that be harmful in the body Um, But at the end of the day, sugar is an irritant and the way it can affect the feet is that um, sugar can affect the nerve endings and irritate them and cause problems with the nerve endings in two ways, either um, giving that person sharp uh, pain, um, particularly in their extremities, their feet, sometimes hands, um, and we call that neuropathic pain. Um, So it's where the nerve endings are are hypersensitive, if you like. But the other way it can also affect the nerve endings is dulling them and, um, you know, making the person, um, well, they don't realise that they're feeling anything. So it sort of numbs areas of the foot Or at the worst, the person may have no sensation in their feet. So this is why it's really important daily that a person, you know, takes care of their feet, looks out for their feet and reports changes. And they should annually be having a foot check where healthcare professional uses various different sensors on the feet. So some of it's soft 
touches and others are little uh, monofilaments, little pricks on the skin to see if that person can identify the difference between those sensations. So, of course, if you haven't got feeling in your feet or you have a lack of feeling in your feet, um, you could wear ill-fitting footwear and a, a small blister could lead to an ulcer, which can lead to you know, a lack of healing, um, particularly if glucose levels are high. Glucose, you know, is a lovely medium for bugs to grow. So wound healing can um, be elongated if your sugar levels are high. So there can be a bad spiral that continues um, from a very innocuous start of ill-fitting footwear or just going barefoot in summer and standing on something that is sharp and causing a wound. So keeping the skin moisturised, looking out for any sores or areas that are, you know, worrying you, reporting them, um, or changes in sensation. So the nerve changes are one thing, but the other aspect is the vascular changes. If, If somebody you know, has cold feet or low feed of of the blood to the peripheries. Maybe they notice more bluish skin or whiter skin, hair not growing um, on their legs or feet. You know, those are signs of poor circulation. So either of those are showing signs that that person needs to be extra careful with their feet. Thank you. And just before you go, Karen, Could you maybe tell us what some of the myths that are out there about diabetes um, that you'd like to bust, maybe? (laughs) Well, um, we could have a whole podcast on that, Monica, I think. I I was thinking of it like when I've delivered diabetes education and, you know, what people come up with. A typical one is um, sugar causes diabetes. But, of course, you're, you know, taking in extra sugar will make your blood sugars go higher, but it's not the causal factor. The causal factor is how your beta cells and insulin production is. Um, The other uh, myth we often hear is that all carbohydrates are bad for you. Um, Carbohydrates are one of our macronutrients, you know, and all carbs will affect blood glucose levels. But it's really important to choose some healthier foods that contain carbs, you know, like whole grains, um, fruit, vegetables, pulses, you know, chickpeas, beans, lentils, dairy products that is such as milk and yogurts, because we do need some fiber um, for bowel health and gut flora. So that's really important. And I think there's a couple of other myths like losing weight is simple for everyone. That's not the case. Some people really find it tough and hard to lose weight and need to be supported to find the method that suits them best, um, you know, and explore those options rather than being judged. Um, And there's a lot of stigma out there about weight, which is very sad, actually. Um, because sometimes that can delay people from seeking help um, because they feel judged. Um, But, yeah, there's a lot we don't know yet um, about people who really do struggle with their weight, um, particularly when it comes to our 
gut flora. Um, and I've seen it firsthand, you know, that a lot of your pharmacists will know about the GLP-1 injectable medications, and they're basically a gut hormone. And I've seen people who have gone on to that therapy and for the first time in a, in ever that, you know, many of them are losing weight. So it shows that they must be deficient in that hormone, um, you know, for it to, to have that impact. So there's lots of myths that abide about food. Fruit has too much sugar, uh, but in the right quantities, fruit is good for us. You know, we, we get lots of nutrients and vitamins from fruit. So many, many myths out there, Monica. We don't have to be active to go to the gym. We can be, just have 10 minutes, you know, doing our um, moving more is better than nothing. So there's, there's lots and lots of myths. <laughs> that's great well thank you so much Karen um just before you go um is there anywhere where you'd like to signpost people to for further support on this topic definitely our diabetes.org.uk website is there we've got oodles of material on the web pages um I mentioned earlier at the introduction there's learning zone there just on the top tab if you click on that and um, put in your details, you've got access to a lot of engaging learning material. We're not doing it like school. It's very fun. There's interactives and quizzes and lots of video narratives from people living with diabetes. Um, but if you want support, if people with diabetes want more support, want a listening ear, we've got a helpline. We've got our forum. Um, so please use those resources and signpost people to them fab thank you Karen thank you so much this has been so interesting I really appreciate um, you taking the time to come on the podcast today no worries thank you for having me next up we have Dr Rani Katib consultant pharmacist in cardiology and cardiovascular research and Dr Ramsey Ajan. Professor of Metabolic Medicine. Welcome both. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Good morning. Hello, Monica. Thank you, Monica. Thank you for joining me. So today we're going to be discussing a brand new service that is making waves at Leeds Teaching Hospital. It's the first service of its kind to combine the cardiac and diabetes team. Could you both start by telling me what the Cardio Metabolic Clinic service is? Ronnie, would you like to start? Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Ramsey. Um, so the Cardiometabolic Clinic is a new innovative service that we have developed uh, with the uh, aim to look after patients who have had um, heart attacks or uh, MIs, as we call them technically, and they uh, also have diabetes. So patients who have been admitted to cardiology with a heart attack and also they have diabetes we have uh, a new service for them that will combine the management of both conditions, including uh, the uh, the kidney element as well, but uh, not in full detail, uh, in order to give them more of a holistic, rounded review, looking at their uh, risk factors, optimizing um, their medicines and ensuring that they are on the right uh, medicines, meeting the right uh, target for their risk factors and 
being well looked after in the pathways and management of both conditions. So the idea is of it is that it will be a combined service. We've already started that. So um, it will have, it's quite unique at Leeds Teaching Hospitals because it will have um, two branches to it. One of it will be uh, a pharmacy-led and one uh, will be uh, a cardiologist and endocrinologist-led uh, 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 and they both will be uh, as one, uh, as an overarching service, uh, proper MDT working, uh, multidisciplinary working, uh, but it's going to have this uniqueness in the structure of it compared to probably uh, standard clinics generally. Hope that gives you a bit of an idea and we can delve into it a little bit more later on. And Ramsey, I'm sure, can add a few bits to that. Um, yeah, thank you, Rani. I mean, as a diabetologist, my main concern for my patients is avoidance of vascular complications and improve outcome after a vascular event. And we've got to remember that people with diabetes, the main cause of mortality in this population remains cardiovascular disease. So once they have a heart attack, their risk of subsequent um, vascular events is quite high. And this is what we are trying to prevent here. So we improve their long-term outcome. If you think of it from the patient's point of view, how great it is that in the same clinic they get their cardiac problems sorted and their diabetes issues sorted so you can get an optimized care using this multidisciplinary approach. I wanted to second, Ramsey, is because from a cardiology perspective, those patients keep coming back to us and they have a higher rate uh, and risk of readmission and more complication from a cardiovascular perspective as well. Therefore, it just makes sense that uh, we optimise uh, this patient care as much as we can collectively, holistically, in order to reduce the risk of readmissions uh, and complications and from a cardiovascular perspective as well. So, so uh, I just wanted to second it, really. Thank you. Thank you. And so when a patient kind of walks through the door, what will this service kind of entail for them? Um, Rani, would you like to talk about the pharmacy approach and then I'll talk about the MDT clinic, if, if you're happy with that? Yeah, absolutely. So we've been championing... Um, within um, our uh, trust and the university uh, what we call a person-centered care approach where we're trying to talk to patients about what is most concerning and important to them so the first thing we do in this clinic before patients come to our clinic we actually post them a special um, tailored questionnaire which explores with them any concerns that they might have about their medicines about their risk factors how much their level of understanding uh, of their numbers do they know their numbers do they know what the blood pressure target do they know what their glu glucose targets do they know what um, their cholesterol targets so we start before the clinic by posting what we call the my meds diabetes questionnaire which is a uh, uh, so a tool that we've developed locally and now there's a huge interest in this tool nationally and internationally and basically it primes the patient before they come to clinic with some questions and thoughts about uh, you know issues that have been coming across so when the when we contact them after that we of course we receive the questionnaire before the clinic 
we have a look at it, we, we see that the patient, for example, have questions about one of their uh, heart tablets or it could be questions about some of their diabetes tablets or they wanted to know more about, um, uh, you know, what's what's my blood pressure target, what's my uh, glucose target, uh, etc. And um, in the clinic, basically, what we try to do, we try to ensure that during the consultation we have covered we have covered the issues um, that the patient wanted covering but also of course we deliver a holistic review for the cardiac elements so we look at their heart attack secondary prevention medicines we explain to them how they were uh, doing and you know what happened when they were admitted what procedure they received what's their diagnosis uh, what tests they received what were the results we ask them about the symptoms how they were doing have they got any symptoms they're experiencing do they have any concerns and when we go we go through some parameters things like the blood pressure readings uh, we go through uh, any glucose readings any blood results that come back and then we go through their medicines and then we agree a plan uh, which is covering both the heart side and the diabetes side in order to ensure that they leave us with a clear plan that we uh, agree with them and we share with the uh, uh, their GP as well, of course. And then, of course, if needed, we bring them back for another visit. Uh, so uh, that's kind of in a nutshell what we, we, we do. Yeah, so if, if I expand on the multidisciplinary clinic, so that clinic has a cardiologist, diabetologist, and a, and a pharmacist in it. And the way we run it is that before the patient comes in, we review the case, we thoroughly review the case, um, and we discuss the main cardiological problems, the main diabetes issues, as well as what concerns the patient might have. And then we have a pretty extensive review, and that, of course, includes the cardiology and the diabetes in the same session. And we make a plan uh, for the patient, and if they need more diabetes support, like involvement of diabetes nurse, for instance, or dietetic support, we put that in place. So they've got everything sorted at one go. And the feedback we're getting from patients, as you can imagine, they, they love it. It's sort of one stop, and we're addressing everything. From my point of view, it's very helpful because I'm learning from the cardiologist. The cardiologist tells me that he's learning from me. I don't know whether he's polite, but that's that's what he's saying. And I think we are learning from the pharmacist and the pharmacist is learning from us. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a scenario where everybody is benefiting. And the ultimate aim, of course, is the well-being of the patient. And we're talking here not only clinical outcome, but patient-related outcomes as well. So we're trying to reduce their distress, for instance, and we're trying to improve their psychological well-being, which I think is very important. It, it's been identified as one of the risk factors for people with cardiovascular disease. So it, it's been a fantastic experience, not only for patients, but for us as well. And we hope we can continue this long term. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And and what do you think your, both of your hopes are for this service? Yeah, so from, from my point of view, Monica, quite frankly, um, A, that we can continue this service long term, and B, that we can roll it out nationally as well. And then, of course, that will involve collecting data to see how we are doing, how we've been doing before and after rolling out the service. So this is our 
long-term aim with the involvement of the patients. So we want to hear from the patients what else we can do to improve the service. I mean, so far, there has been an overwhelming um, uh, sort of positive opinion about the service from, from patients. So we know that they do like it. Um, but of course, we need to um, show that it is improving clinical outcome as well. I mean, in my view, there's no doubt that it will, but of course we need to collect the data. So in short, um, make sure that the service continues, the service is expanded, and we're continuously collecting data to show the benefit. So um, we had uh, previously uh, tested similar concept, but was more focused on improving patient care post-MI. And that was uh, very successful. We piloted it. We're very successful. And it's been running now for nearly seven years in the trust. Uh, and it is a service that was recognized by uh, NICE as a uh, an excellent model to uh, roll out the whole, uh, you know, different, different different areas across the country. And we're trying to duplicate the same work again using our experience. And basically, what our hopes are is that we show that this service is of great value for the patient, great value in terms of the, its new way of working. Because historically, um, for example, our post-MI patients used to be reviewed by our cardiologist only. Then we've changed and uh, uh, brought in more of a pharmacy input into that service. So the pathway in Leeds uh, has an established post-MI pharmacy element to it, which has actually improved um, uh, capacity, reduced waiting time for being patient, being followed up, and made the service more holistic because the review is focused on multiple issues related to medicines and risk optimization. So our hopes with this service that it will um, build on previous experience and actually show the value of having this MDT working uh, and show will show that um, we are addressing patient needs better, patients are doing better and patients enjoying actually having this holistic one-stop shop as described. Um, and on the long term, uh, we would hope that uh, what we find, what we experience would be uh, duplicated in other uh, centers around the country and also even internationally uh, so that we can share good practice uh, generally. That's where our hopes and eyes looking up to. Rani, if, if I may add, and I would really value your, your views on this, um, I mean, at the moment we are targeting the very high risk population. So this is a population that had myocardial infarction. So we are sort of reactive. I think uh, in the long term, we're talking very long term, I would like to see us proactive as well and intervene at an earlier stage. But of course, it's early days now. But you know, if, you, if you're asking me about my, um, what would be sort of my biggest wish is to really be able to target all these risk factors at an earlier stage. And I think that will be coming if we can expand as we are planning. Yeah. I agree. Um, I think at the moment, if you, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Ramsey, we are trying to uh, target the highest risk patients. So they are, those are patients who have been admitted with MI and we and they have diabetes. So they are the highest risk. Um, 
But there are two other categories, I guess. One is patients who are admitted to cardiology for a cause other than MI, uh, and they have diabetes. Uh, so those would be people that we should be targeting that would require expansion of the service at that level. But then we've got another uh, area, of course, which is actually optimizing uh, uh, you know, the prevention element before even patient comes to hospital, and that would be probably more in primary care. Because... We're doing this clinic in secondary care. We're capturing the highest risk patients who get admitted to hospital. It would be um, fantastic uh, as we uh, build our experience and expand our service that we start targeting patients even before they're admitted to hospital so that we can optimize the risk factors uh, way in advance. That would be the long-term vision, definitely. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. And, and my final question to you both, why do you think that this is an important partnership and and is this really kind of the first time you've seen cardiac and diabetes team come together in such a way there's there's there are many partnership in this project <laughs> so this project actually has got a lot of partnerships uh, the uh, the the first well you've got uh, an interesting partnership between cardiology and diabetes um and this is something that um uh, though we have known for a long time, as Ramsey has been explaining earlier on, that uh, there is a big interplay between cardiac conditions and diabetes. And we know that patients with um, diabetes are uh, more likely to have cardiovascular events. They're more likely to have heart failure. They're more likely to be admitted uh, with, uh, with complications. Uh, etc. We also uh, know in cardiology that patients who come to us with diabetes, they tend to have higher rate of readmissions and they usually would have uh, more complications uh, in their management generally. So that was recognized and I guess um, things have uh, been coming towards this direction of actually maybe doing a holistic review should include both and input from both. What facilitated that, I guess, in the last uh, few years is that some medicines that they were coming out um, were actually of benefit for both conditions. So where historically a lot of the medicines that we used mainly benefited diabetes by controlling glucose, um, now we have more medicines that work beyond just glucose control and actually they exert a lot of cardiovascular benefit. So it became of an area of interest to cardiology. Not only that, some of these medicines now which were developed for diabetes, they actually are used inpatient in cardiology without diabetes. So the research and the development of a lot of new medicines in the last, uh, uh, you know, five years or so uh, have actually driven this kind of uh, union between cardiology and, and diabetes. So diabetes medicines uh, uh, being used in cardiology without diabetes because they've got cardiovascular benefits and diabetes medicines used in diabetes and now exerting cardiovascular benefits. So that was one element of partnership. The other partnership, of course, the MDT um, element that I've described, uh, which is you've got um, a consultant pharmacist, you've got an advanced pharmacist, you've got a cardiologist, you've got a diabetologist, all working together with the support of other members of the team. So we we have access to uh, diabetes nurses, but we also uh, are forming partnership with dietitians, with rehab nurses, with uh, weight management, 
all these people coming together as a proper holistic approach to support the patient. And of course, in this specific project, we have partners with um, uh, the pharmaceutical industry on a completely non-promotional basis to support this pilot so that it can be something that we can do long term. Uh, and that's what probably the, the press release was highlighting also this partnership uh, with uh, pharmaceutical industry in a new way of working, uh, going away from the old fashioned way of just thinking that pharmaceutical companies would be more talking about um, uh, uh, specific medicines in this context is completely non-promotional. It's all about how can we develop a service that would be useful for our patients, improve their care. Um, and, you know, it is kind of a proper shared uh, investment from both sides, the, tr the Leeds Teaching Hospital Trust and uh, the, uh, uh, the investment from the pharmaceutical company. And I'll hand over to Ramsey for additions. Thank you. Yes, Riley, I, I think you, you, you summarise it very well. From, from my point of view, I, I've been calling for a partnership between diabetes and cardiology for many, many years. And um, as Rani quite rightly pointed out, the, the trials showing that some diabetes medicines have got cardiovascular protective properties brought this partnership to become sort of more of a reality now because people are realizing that cardiology and diabetes will have to work more closely together. And that actually explains the American Diabetes Association um, uh, announcement, uh, I can't remember exactly when, around three years ago, when they said that cardiometabolic medicine should be a new specialty, and I, I, I completely agree with that. And I think that having, having this partnership with pharmacy, cardiology, and diabetes, and hopefully if we can bring in renal at some stage, that will be very, very good and, and essential for the, for the long-term benefits of, of our patients. And as Ronnie pointed out, all the other partnerships in terms of industry, I mean, we are very grateful to industry for allowing this to, to happen in a very non-promotional way. Um, and also the partnership with everybody else. I mean, think about it, primary care, um, there's a partnership there because they are affected by these clinics and so on. But the ultimate aim, of course, is to improve outcome of our patients. And I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself, but we've got to remember it's not only clinical outcome, but patient-related outcomes. We want our patient to feel better as well, sort of adding years to life, not just life to two years. Oh, sorry, is it, have I said it the wrong way? Adding life to two years, not just years to life. Fantastic. Thank you both so much was there anything else you wanted to touch on before we finish um if i may i think i, I would just say that um I, and i mean it i feel very lucky to be working with um, colleagues like rani like trish the other pharmacist who works with us and of course uh, my long-term friend in cardiology steve Wheatcroft, who who's been running this this service with us and, and i hope as i said that we can expand it um, locally, regionally, and nationally. Thank you, Ramzi. It's a pleasure for me to work with you. I've been working with Steve uh, for a long time in cardiology and uh, introduced to Ramsey in this project, and uh, it's, it's fabulous. And I like also the all the connections we're building. And, and I just wanted to second what Ramsey was saying about the patient needs. 
we are identifying when we speak to patients because these are lengthy consultations, um, many aspects related to you know anxiety, psychology issues that we also reach out sometimes to our clinical psychologists and their support. But also uh, we're finding those discussions go beyond just the medicines, a lot of focus on lifestyle modification, supporting patients in things like quitting smoking, improving the weight management, which we can't do all in our own. We will need the support of other services, but we're trying to make it as holistic and rounded approach as possible. So thank you very much. Today, I'm speaking with Max Roster, a 23-year-old graduate, about his experience living with type 1 diabetes. Max was diagnosed at the age of seven and has dealt with the condition throughout his teenage and university years. So, yeah, I mean, as, as you already said in your introduction, I was seven years old. So for some, that's quite young uh, to be diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Uh, I just remember a period of, of getting sort of thinner and thinner uh, because your blood sugars increase, which means you need to try and regulate your sugar levels using sort of any means necessary, really. And one of those is just flooding your system and trying to get out all of the sugar. So yeah, it's not particularly good for your body. I just remember getting thinner and thinner. My parents were concerned about me. Uh, And there was one uh, particularly memorable occasion when I was watching uh, Middlesex versus Kent at the Oval with my dad and my granddad. And I just could not stop drinking. It was was like continual, um, you know, litre after litre of water. Uh, And I think at that point when... When I was there, um, everyone realised that that was kind of not normal. So, you know, I got taken to hospital and, um, yeah, diagnosed swiftly afterwards. And what was that like for you at such a young age? So, I mean, there's there's, there's pros and cons, really, of it being um, at such a young age. So, I mean, the first that I've been told is that it's it's a lot easier to manage sort of when you grow up, if you, if you have it when you're younger, because you become acclimatised to living with it. Um, it's very different for someone having kind of more of a memory of kind of life before um you know it it can be a lot more difficult but because i was seven and because i was so young i kind of got used to it pretty quickly um so yeah i I would say there's obviously pros and cons as i said but yeah i'd see it as beneficial getting it as young as i did yeah fair enough and going into your teens obviously that's when um people start drinking alcohol towards the end of your teens and and going out more um, how did managing it changed with that? What were the new challenges that came along? Yeah, so I mean, as a sort of teen, you have a, it's a very good level of care at the NHS level. So that kind of allowed me to, I mean, I kind of just wanted to ignore it through my teens, frankly. Uh, I didn't really want to, you know, acknowledge it. I didn't really want to engage with it. Uh, and the kind of level of care that I was getting was all external, right? So it wasn't really sort of self-driven at that point, the management of my diabetes. It was much more, sort of when I went into the appointments, they would keep checking on me. Uh, I just kind of threw caution to the wind a little bit um, and just and just kind of went with it as I kind of, as best I could. Yeah, that's great. And um, now as a young adult, have you noticed any difference? Do you um, take more responsibility for it or do you still rely heavily on like, healthcare professionals? So, I mean, definitely as you, as you kind of grow out of that kind of care system, I think it's 16 is the time when you're flipped over to the adult um, diabetes sort of care system in the NHS. And sort of there's, like, there's less um, sort of intense focus on you, I guess, when you, when you kind of become an adult with diabetes. So a lot of it's self-managed, but the amount of progression there's been in the technologies around it as well um, has been really, really useful. But yeah, being a, a kind of a young sporty sort of, Uh, individual it can be it can be tough to manage because having you know taking part in those kinds of activities 
tends to throw your sugars off one way. And as you mentioned, you know, when you're young and, and you know, going out, drinking alcohol, etc., it can throw it the other way. So you've got to kind of, yeah, you just got to think about things um, sort of as you do them and the impact that they're going to have in a few hours time. And you recently, in the last few years, um, got the Freestar Libra 2 sensor. Um, how has that changed things for you, if, if it has at all? Oh, yeah. yeah. As I, as I just said, like the technology has gotten so much better. So uh, I got that, yeah, in the last couple of years. And uh, prior to that, it was, it was finger pricking tests, which give you like a, a, a basically a snapshot as to what your sugar level is now. But with this Freestar Libra, it's about the size of a two pound coin. Um, and it's like a small device that sticks to the back of your arm. Um, and it basically takes consistent readings throughout the day. So long as you use it enough, um, it will give you a full picture of your 24 hours, where your levels have been. It also gives you a directional uh, arrow that shows you where your, where your sugar levels are actually heading to. So it, it's a, the transparency around like where I am and my management around that is really useful, especially having it linked up to your iPhone now. So I don't need to carry around any sort of clunky tester or any equipment like that. It, yeah, the Freestyle Libre 2 has been a real game changer. So how does that work? So yeah, there, there's an app on your phone and, and you you link it up to um, the sensor through Bluetooth and it, it effectively takes your readings throughout the day. And also you can, you can uh, you know, make it, you can program it so that it provides you alarms if your glucose goes too high or too low. So your, your phone really is, is, obviously everyone these days has their phone around them all the time. And it's the most useful uh, tool in order to be able to interact with your diabetes on a kind of an intimate level. You get to see things really, really clearly. And so what would happen if it notified you that you were going low, for example? So if it notified me that I was going low and, and it kind of it beeps on my phone, it's almost like getting a ring. Um, I then obviously I have to take a, I have to take a reading to show me what you know, what level of low I'm at. Uh, and depending on that information that I get, I will then, you know, take action, you know, go and get some uh, sugar or, or a, you know, a drink or whatever to try and correct that. Perfect. And finally, um, what advice do you have for other young people with type 1 diabetes, whether they've just been diagnosed or they've had it like you since the early years of their life? Yeah, um, I'm, I've spoken to a couple of people just sort of along my kind of trip having diabetes when I've been in hospitals and things. And a lot of people just ask, you know, how, you know, is there any advice? And I guess one thing would be just just go with it. Like a lot of people, I did it as well in my teens, and, and you kind of try and you try and fight it. It's kind of, you know, you don't want to do it. You just kind of push against it. But the the more you go with it, the better the better it will it'll work with you. And um, yeah, I, I think embracing it is is one thing that I would I would advise anyone with diabetes or type one diabetes of a young age. Uh, to do because it you know fighting against it's just never going to work that's great thank you so much max for coming on the podcast and sharing your experience no worries thank you millie and max and what a show i've learned so much so i hope that you have too make sure you have a look at our show notes as always, to find out some of the amazing resources, we hope you will feel more confident when chatting to your customers with diabetes in the pharmacy. Until next time, I'm Monica West, and this is Category Insight. Mm-hmm.